Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Beatles came on and you couldn't hear a word then either. They sang their set and it was a wave of sound and photographs and flashbulbs going off. And I remember leaving utterly exhausted. I didn't hear a thing. I didn't hear one tune from there. Thank God I'd heard every single one because I listened to them all the time. Yeah. But that was my experience of listening, hearing the Beatles live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Leslie Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, and we'll be in a parking lot, maybe? (laughs) Uh, Joining me today is my new friend, Stephanie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's great to meet you. It is great to meet you. I can't wait to visit with you. You talked about in your meeting that a child of the 60s, you grew to love the poetry of Joni Mitchell. Yes. And I am looking forward to doing a deep dive on that. Before I do, give my audience a little bit, who is Stephanie? Okay, then. Well, I am calling you from Portland, Maine, which I told you earlier today, but I'm not from Portland. Originally, I'm from Chicago, where I was born into a Greek-American family, and uh, I've become a writer and a lawyer, and I had a prior career on and off Broadway in New York. I've combined the law and literature and the arts into what I do now, which is I write. I find that history in Chicago of having grown up in the suburban Midwest, among people who were very busy assimilating into American life has really affected my writing and has really informed it deeply. Along with that come the sounds that are associated with how you grow up. I had a lot of Greek music in my life. My mother loved Maria Callas. Interestingly, we listened to a lot of Harry Belafonte, whom my parents adored. And eventually, I fell in love with Joni Mitchell and her work. And I guess we'll get to that. What I want to say to your audience and to you, Jesse, is that 
I've also grown up in a family of lawyers. Okay. So that has deeply informed what I write as well. I care a lot about how people meet adversity and particularly adversity in a system that's very tough on them and how they come out of that with grace and humor and resilience. And to me, those are the characters that speak really most deeply to me. I think that having grown up hearing a lot of the personal stories behind the criminal legal proceedings that my family represented, they're all criminal defense lawyers but me, and one of my brothers can you imagine what it was like trying to speak at the dinner table, by the way? <laughs> yes, I can imagine. Yes. <laughs> I really had to try to hold my own. One of my brothers is a death penalty defense specialist. He advocates against capital punishment, but he knows it from the inside out. And he knows very clearly why he has his position. So the human stories behind all that really moved me. And yes, you wanted to ask something, Jesse. You're taking well, a <laughs> yeah, just I wanted to reach out. And so it's Pride Month. Yeah. And today, as we're recording this, the Supreme Court had a thing that actually could take away affirmative action. And I was just listening before we jumped on that. This court seems to want to take things away from people. And I just was curious your thoughts on that as someone, because you just mentioned the adversity people are going through. And we do not feel, I do not understand the lack of grace we are giving people, the, the, the anger toward same sex marriage, transgender. It just, so if you wanted, just tell me a little bit about that in your thoughts on it, Stephanie, and then we'll get to something lighter, I promise. That's okay. I, this is very important, what yes. you asked. I will say I haven't read, I uh, haven't had time to sit down and read an article about the recent decision, nor have I read the decision from the court on affirmative yeah. action. So really, I'm only going from headlines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I take your point that this plus, for example, the Dobbs decision represents a withdrawal. You put it so beautifully, a withdrawal from grace, perhaps. Yeah. And it's interesting that you use that term because what I look for when I'm writing is how my characters locate grace in the middle of things that are stacked against them. And it does seem sad to me. I probably share your perspective quite strongly. It does seem sad to me that the court and various people in elected office seem to favor withdrawing from a freedom to be as expansive a society and as rich a society as we can be. I feel that is fear-driven. I don't have enough evidence about that to just call it up right now today, but I see it as a shame. That's the case. Pardon me. The expansiveness of the society is what actually I think we're going to talk about a little bit, believe it or not, in yeah. comparing Joni Mitchell 
to Bruce Springsteen, because I would like to make that comparison later on. I love that. Uh, yeah, because they yeah. have totally different perspectives on very expansive views. They're both terrific poets, by the way. Each is a poet. Yeah. But they bring a different gaze to their subject matter. And I think we need them both. So my perspective really very simply is one that I think it's a shame. I do not believe, quite frankly, that this Supreme Court nor certain electeds actually represent the opinion of the American people right now. I think the American people are in a different place than this court is. I think so too. And I think that when you see polling numbers that the amount of people who support same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. suspect reasonable gun control laws, abortion access, and it is just a very, it's a dark time. And yeah. I make the joke, Stephanie, that I live here in Texas, so I am a blueberry in a very strawberry state. <laughs> You're uh, a blueberry in a cranberry patch. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and I joke that sadly, but it's true that when I reach out to my elected officials, that they basically say, thank you for sharing. Here's why you're wrong. Oh, Oh, please tell us, please keep us focused, whether it's Ted Cruz or John Corwin or Michael Burgess, or they're, they are very much do not want to hear from a different side. And my Mm. idea is, as you said, the diversity of our society is what made us great. And it is what has brought joy to this nation. And by trying to stop diversity, I think it's actually hurting ourselves. We are hurting ourselves. And I don't, I think you can try to stop it, Jesse. I don't think you'll succeed. Not you personally, obviously. Yes, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. Our, Our native colleagues, have made their voices heard, thank God, more and more in this country as they should, and we need to be listening, that's not going to go away. Our Black colleagues, the folks who came over in the Middle Passage, who are not immigrants to this country, they didn't immigrate here like my people did. They were stolen. They were brought here. Their voices are not going away. So people can try to tell you that you're wrong as much as they like, But that's not going to succeed, in my view, without a fight. So I hope, I just hope that Mr. Allred, who I understand is challenging Mr. Cruz, I wish him success. I do Um, too. Good. And I I am noticing, uh, despite the conversation we just had, that the Supreme Court in Moore v. Harper just drew a line that I'm grateful that they did, which was, as you well know, no, we cannot undermine the very structure of our constitutionally mandated election system. They drew the line there. Thank goodness. Yeah, I that was good news. It absolutely yeah. was. And we can only hope Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right. Yeah. So I love to ask this question when I have a Bruce guest. So we'll do it this way. Can you remember when you first discovered the music of Joni and what about it spoke to you, Stephanie? Why was that something that reached your soul? I first discovered it in college. Okay. Her first album was, I believe, released in 1969. I think it was Clouds. No, it it couldn't be 1969 because I was in college and I graduated in 68. I discovered her in college and it was as though her poetry and her voice and her clarity spoke directly to me and to the young women I knew who were struggling. Let's, I don't know about struggling, though there were, there was a struggle there, who were engaged in the conventions and walking away from the conventions of romance, identity, ambition, if you will, discovery, a different gaze on what's happening, and agency. And Mitchell just came directly forward to you and spoke about those things in this limpid voice with a, what, three-octave range minimum, an amazing vocal range, which was astonishing to listen to, and a poetry, as I've said, that expressed things that you didn't think anybody understood, and suddenly somebody did, and that was Joni Mitchell. Not to mention her movement from 
the folk tradition that many of us had embraced during the early 60s, which she was part of, and moved away. She moved away from that very rapidly, in my view, toward a really sophisticated, subtle and sophisticated musical expression that just blew me away. She had open guitar tunings that nobody else was using. Eventually, apparently a man, a very savvy man with electronics, created a system for her, created an electronic system for her that would adjust tuning so that she didn't have to switch guitars all the time in her shows because she was using different tunings for different numbers. And then eventually her fusion with jazz and other forms, it was the most exhilarating, nuanced expression of the pathway of many women I knew, including myself. If that answers your question. It does. And it answers wonderful. The seeing someone perform live is not a barometer of how big of a fan you are. There are people that have never seen their favorite artists perform and they're still passionate. And there's people that have seen bands hundreds of times because of luck of when they were born and where they were born. But have you seen Joni perform live? And if so, how many? I have not. I am very sad to say I've never seen her. I don't know why, frankly, but I never saw her live. We can see her now if we choose to go to one of these rare places she goes to. That will be a different event, of course. Yeah. Having seen her in earlier times when she was doing what she was doing then. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm skipping ahead, perchance. Oh, I did see live. Who's that? The Beatles. Oh, wow. Tell me about that. I know, right? It was, I was in high school because, yeah, I was in high school. And they were appearing in Chicago at one of the big venues there, some amphitheater that I can no longer remember. And Jesse, it was so electric in there. The people were screaming just for no reason because the energy was so vibrating and electric. It was almost frightening, but I was so happy to be there. And yet I was still in my home life enough to be wearing white gloves. I kid you not. I was wearing white gloves with whatever I was wearing. And I was determined not to get carried away by the screaming. But it was as though I was sitting there against a tidal wave of sound. And the opening act, was it Dusty Springfield? Or who was the woman who sang Downtown? Patrulla Hark? Yeah. Yes, it might have been Petula Clark. Okay. And she was under such a disadvantage because people were just screaming. You couldn't hear her. She sang her tunes into a complete void of sound. And she was angry. I don't blame her a bit, by the way. But she came on, she left. And then the Beatles came on and you couldn't hear a word then either. They sang their set and it was a wave of sound and photographs and flashbulbs going off. And I remember leaving utterly exhausted. I didn't hear a thing. I didn't hear one tune from them. Thank God I'd heard every single one because I listened to them all the time. Yeah. But that was my experience of listening, hearing the Beatles live. 
One of my favorite stories, Stephanie, is during the No Nukes tour, they talked to Tom Petty about playing before Bruce was going to play. And they said, now, Tom, you're going to hear people and it's going to sound like they're saying boo, but they're saying Bruce. So we don't want you to think that they're booing you. Oh, yeah. And Petty is supposedly have said, is there a difference? (laughs) (laughs) And I like, either way, they're telling me they're ready for me to leave and they want the other person to go. That's right. That's right. It's a hell of a gig being the opener for. It is. It can be. Yes, it can be. Absolutely. I did want to go back. You mentioned your white gloves and doing. I I find my listeners are into two groups, the yeah. groups that embraced their parents' music and loved it. And then as they became a teenager, a young, young adult, their range expand, but they never gave up on their parents' music. The other is they rebelled, didn't like their parents' music. And then when they were 30, realized, hey, that was pretty good music. Yeah. <laughs> so which side do you think you're on? I think I'm in category number one. Okay. I don't think I ever dismissed what my parents listened to. Yeah. they. For one thing, the Greek music that we heard at church, certainly that was Byzantine music. I stopped going to church after after some years, but that was embedded in my heart. That I would never, ever forget. Yeah. And I've always loved Harry Belafonte. You wouldn't think of a Greek-American family and then think Harry Belafonte. Right. But my parents adored the guy. So we played his albums over and over again. And I never stopped loving him. Uh, It's just that the world expanded. So they didn't necessarily embrace what I loved, which is okay. They didn't have to. When I went away to college, I just started focusing on other things is how it turned out. But I sang some of those spirituals, even though they are not of my tradition, right? For the rest of my life from Belafonte, we had, there's an album of his, I think, called My Lord, What a Morning. Yeah. And I, it's never left my heart. Oh, it's, I love that. Oh, it's such a beautiful album. Did you just know you wanted to go to law school because that was the family business? What a great question. Man, I didn't do that till I was 39 years old. Okay. Okay. What I did instead was I went to college, but way before that, when apparently I was five or something, somebody asked me, I'm told, what's your name, little girl? And I said, Judy Garland. And my my grandmothers were utterly horrified because that was not where they wanted me to be in life, to to emulate a movie star and a musical theater person and all those things. But I fell in love with musical theater and that entire milieu very early in my life. So though I went to college and studied literature there, I became part of the singing group there and went on to graduate school to get a degree in music and in singing specifically. No, I was not on the legal path for quite a while. And this was, my parents weren't all that happy that I was going into music, but they certainly didn't stop me. 
I got into the Yale Repertory Theater and performed there for a year and then went to New York City because that's where the roles were. And I spent 15 years in New York theater on and off Broadway in film and TV doing what people do when they're in that line of work. It wasn't something my family really wanted me to be doing, to be honest with you. They would much rather have seen me in an academic capacity or certainly married <laughs> earlier than I was. So you look like you had a question again. You no, of- I was listening. I was I'm curious. Obviously, you were 15 years. You were fairly successful. Yeah. You were keeping, you were keeping the rent, keeping food That's on right. the table. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't the done thing for a Greek-American girl. What led you back to the law then? Great question. It was tough uh, getting support and not support, both from my family, to be honest with you. So that was a theme throughout those years. But I can't really complain because I was able to do that thing in the theater. However, in 19, what was it, 85, 83, whenever it was, it might have been 80-ish. I was in a Broadway show, and it won the Tony Award that year. It was a musical, the musical Nine. Okay. And so that was it was good. It was a successful thing to be in the original Broadway cast of that. I was finding that something in me was not satisfied. And when the Mexico City earthquake of that era happened, I remember sitting on my sofa with a very dear friend, who was also in a Broadway show. And we watched rescuers with rescue dogs going through the rubble of Mexico City and those dogs weaving in and out and finding people and saving people. And I remember turning to my friend and saying, you know what? I don't have a single skill that those people need. Not one. And she said, yeah, I know. So that was a clarifying moment for me. I thought, if you're feeling this way, you got to take a look at what you're doing. So I did. And I did a lot of research on what I could do instead. And I kept getting pulled back to the law because obviously my family was heavily into it. But also it was the quickest way to a professional life that I could determine that would really get me into a place where I felt I was dealing with the human condition in a different way. So I didn't think anybody would accept me, but I got into law school and I went. How different was it? I've been told that often when you are more mature, Mm. that it is sometimes easier to go back to school to get a degree. Was it difficult for you or was it a little bit easier? I would say on balance easier. Yeah. On balance. Sure. There were some hard things like the differential and experience between yourself and your classmates. Sometimes it's just not a fit, but mostly I had absolutely wonderful classmates and I knew why I was there, which I think a lot of older students or more mature students say about returning to school. Yeah. Now, I'd already had a bachelor's and a master's degree, but it had been a long time. I'd been 15 years out of school. So this time, 
I knew very specifically that I was there because I was searching for a way to do something meaningful. This was not a default choice for me in any way. And yeah, Jesse, it was easier that way. And I have to tell you, it was easy for me to focus on the work. For whatever the reason, it was easy to focus. So there it was. So you've had a career in Broadway and musicals, then an attorney. Why the third career and decided to write? <laughs> More good questions. I, there was some real interesting work that came my way as a lawyer, for sure. I was in a very big firm in New York City. So the hours were what they were. They're really wall-to-wall work hours, which I knew when I accepted the job. But it, there was a point there at which my husband became very ill and died while our son was three years old. And I had to make a choice about whether or not to be a present parent in his life. And for a variety of reasons, I decided I couldn't do that while continuing that kind of work in that environment. I was an older parent already. I didn't want to make the choices that I would have had to make in terms of hiring people to be with my son most of the day. So I had dear friends in Maine who my husband knew and I knew, and they said, why don't you come here and just try it for a little while? See whether this works for you. And I went with feeling very uncomfortable. It took a long time for me to be truly comfortable in Maine, but I saw that I could be a present parent to my child, to my son, without working that many hours. It's really simple. And so that's what I did. So talk a little bit about the book. Okay. The book has come in the last few years. I didn't really tell you how I came to writing fiction. When I landed in Maine, I was still considering law jobs, and I still did law-related work. I counseled nonprofits. I did strategic planning. I did some legislative drafting. So all of that is not fiction writing. Yet there was something underneath that kept going. I was writing poetry in the background. I was writing stories in the background. And it came to pass that after my son graduated from high school and went to college, I said, this is, it's time for you to do what's in the background. Something is calling you to do that, so do it. And I did. I started attending writers' conferences, writing longer pieces and getting published and so on and so forth. So a few years ago, I decided to write a novella. I didn't know it was going to be a novella. I thought it was going to be a short story about the people I knew from when I was growing up. We're back to the memories of the Greek music, the household, the growing up in suburban Chicago. And what started to come forward after all of those years were the voices of the people that I knew and grew up with. Music, sound, and voice have been really important in my writing, I have discovered. So the voices that came forward were the voice of a lawyer modeled on somebody I know intimately who has a slow-burning desire to correct injustice if he can, and the parallel voice of a Greek immigrant woman who is his mentor, 
and his guide, even though he doesn't realize it when he's a child. And she is a woman who suffered horrors during the Greek Civil War after World War II, keeps them secret, and raises a young man in the suburbs of Chicago. He becomes a lawyer, and he realizes later in life she has taught him through a series of events and because of who she is, how love can triumph over injustice. And that's how that story came to be. It was started as a short story, and I began to realize it was longer than that. It was a bigger story than that. I wrote it. It got published. It's in a second edition right now, and I'm delighted. What was the And Go ahead. Give us the name of the book. The name is My Xanthi, X-A-N-T-H-I. It can be found on Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, Amazon, um, all the regular outlets. And it is a novella by me. It's a story that I hope will take a turn that readers don't expect. Okay. And I, it's a novella length makes it some, first of all, you can get it easily because of our distribution channels, which are amazing. Right. Online nowadays, if you want to go, by the way, I need to put in a plug for your local bookstore. Absolutely. If, okay. If anybody wants to go to their local bookstore and say, would you kindly order this book for me? They will be able to find it through the Ingram Spark database. Okay. Your bookstore can sell it to you. Okay. Please do operate through your local bookstore if you want to, everybody. And if you go to bookshop.org, which is a wonderful distribution outlet, you can choose your favorite bookstore to be a recipient of a percentage of the revenues from this book. Yes. There are ways, right, to support your local bookstores. Yes. I've forgotten the question you asked. No, that's, I just was (laughs) wanting you to promote the book. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to Joni. I take it she has continued to be a presence in your life, her music? Yeah. All through your different journeys? You know what? You've done me an enormous favor, actually, because I hadn't listened to her in a long time. Okay. Okay. And then you reached out to me and we planned this podcast. And what's happened is it almost brought me to tears to listen to all of that music again. I haven't listened to all of it, yeah, but much of it. And it speaks to me as powerfully today as it did then. In fact, maybe more because today I understand when I hear Blue or the earlier albums before that, how young a woman she was when she articulated everything she did. And when she put that in your lap about longing and insight, uh, about how she saw right into some of the men she was involved in and what their struggles were, for example, and what she wanted, what her gaze was, where she wanted to go. At my age now, it really rings differently. even. But the beauty of the music is absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. So I thank you because it's as powerful as it ever was. And I, I was, I, yes, go I, ahead. I just would say I often find that a song that 
you heard when you were 20 is a different meaning when you are 40 or even like me, I just hit 64. The song is different because I've changed. Correct. And the, the beauty of a great song is it can mean different things to different people. One of my favorite scenes is in the TV show Treme. Steve Earle is playing a character there and he's talking to a young musician and they're listening to John Hyatt and it feels like rain. Mm. And she's going, gosh, I can't believe he's captured the feeling of Katrina. And the Steve Earle character goes, that was written 10 years before Katrina happened. See, And he says, that's the beauty of a song is it can speak to us no matter what. All right. You have me curious. So Let's put on your academic hat and compare Joni and Bruce. Okay, great. <laughs> I hope I won't offend anybody by saying this, but I've listened to very little Bruce Springsteen in my life. That's okay. Yeah. And so you did me another favor because I had to, of course, read the lyrics to Thunder Road, right? Yes. And I said, oh, that's right. Of course, this man is a poet. I, of course. And it's really a very powerful piece of writing. I listened to the official video of Thunder Road and the early stanza with, I think, acoustic guitar, certainly acoustic instruments, it goes right in my lap. It really, I can really hear it and I can really feel it. But as with much of of Springsteen's work, as it gains volume, I lose the words. I can't Mm. hear them anymore. When I deliberately clicked around to some of his performances, and one of the famous ones of On the Run. Born to Run. Yeah. Pardon me? Born to Run. Yes. Yes. Forgive me. Of Born to Run is just phenomenally powerful. The beauty and the youth and the power of the man and the generosity and, oh, my God. But I can't hear what he's saying. I cannot hear it. So thank God, born to run, I get that part. And I can I can obviously look up the lyrics elsewhere. He, for me, his that's his power. The longing that he creates is this phenomenally generous male power, which includes his his stance on social issues, by the way, and all the ways that he's engaged with this society. I really respect it. I think he's tremendous. Mitchell delivers her poetry to me in an unmistakable way. I never miss a word. I never miss a syllable from her. And it's a, it is a female gaze for me. I'm not trying to pull the world, by the way, into these two polarities because that's not how people are. Exactly. Right? It's yes. not how people are. So I'm using these things as archetypes, and there you can punch a lot of holes in that. I do get that part. But they come with really different perspectives, both supremely expansive. So you're going to ask me at some point about Mary. I, we can hold uh, on. Yes, uh, I will I- do that. That's Yes, I will do that. What I did want to mention is my wife has similar issues. Interesting. And she said that... She can't understand what he's saying. Right. And so what I suggested, we were going to a show and I said, what I suggest you do is 
I said, go back to when we were kids and we listened to Peter and the Wolf, the instrumental. I said, so picture Bruce as just another instrument. Don't try to understand the lyrics. Just listen to the emotion of Uh what he's portraying. And that made it easier for her. And then, like you said, later, she went back and read some of the lyrics. I do think that's two methods of communication. Yeah. Right? That, yeah, yeah, very different. Very different. Yeah. Are there favorite, you talked about it, and why do you think you drifted away from her music? Oh, great. Another great question was when I decided to study music in graduate school, I still loved her a lot, but what I was studying had nothing to do with the kind of singing that she was doing. Let's get real clear. I could never have emulated her anyway. Right. (laughs) She is so unique and so astounding. But I was studying art song and opera and translating that to some extent into musical theater. So I was immersed in other things completely. And I Mm -hmm. did a lot of Bertolt Brecht and Court Vile operas, operettas. Okay. So that was where I was living. That was my bread and butter for a while. So it was my ear and my life were taken up with learning and performing just different kinds of things. So that's how it all fell away. So that's pretty much the answer to that. And I will add that in law school, I wasn't listening to much music at all. By the time I finished my performing arts career and went to law school. I confess, I was listening to instrumental music and not vocal music very much. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to as a background for studying and working and everything. And a relief, to be honest. No more talking, no more, (laughs) no more verbal parsing, nothing. Just and jazz in particular, just the beauty. The mathematical beauty, which sounds cold, doesn't it? The beauty of jazz was soothing and, yeah, it just helped me to relax away from what I was studying. Yeah. So now that you've rediscovered her, are there albums or songs that have a special place in your heart? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'm going to have to go on my computer because there are so many. The song Blue itself is a magnificent song what's watch the song from which there is the line i could drink a case of you darling and still i'd be on my feet that's a great line oh that's a great line i could drink a case of you and still be on my feet whatever that song is a case of you according to google i think thank you sir that's exactly right i am going to pull up the albums I loved so much. They are, in fact, Clouds was a very early album. And it's one of the, the quote, simpler albums that I loved very much. People loved the song Clouds, and I did too. But I really kicked in when Blue came out with its jazz influence. Court and Spark was another extraordinary album. And Where was the one for the roses? There's another extraordinary album whose whose songs I loved deeply. And let's see if I can find one for you. Cold Blue, it's a dark song. Cold Blue Steel and Sweet Fire. 
Mm. Gorgeous song. It's about a man's heroin addiction. And I think the, the background is it might have been about James Taylor's heroin addiction because mm. she was involved with James Taylor at one point. It's not a light song. It's a dark song. Its elegance and its honesty are chilling and gorgeous. So that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of progression. When you get to Cold Blue Steel and Sweet Fire, you're very far away from clouds. Okay. And you've gone through, I'm going to say, a loss of innocence journey in hearing this woman grow into completely different phases of life. And I will go so far as to say revisiting her reminds me of the loss of innocence that my main characters in my novella go through. I thought mm-hmm. to myself, oh, yeah, this tracks exactly the same period of time. My narrator in Mike Santhi, my novella, is a lawyer. He's a criminal defense lawyer. And his daughter, his teenage daughter in California, in current years, in modern times, is asking him, Dad, how can you defend those people? And he decides he's got to meet her challenge. He's really got to talk to her because she's 17 years old and she's having a crisis of conscience around this. Sure. So he's got to answer her. What he finds out is that he's got to face something in himself to do that. And he looks into his drawer where he's kept a set of old letters from his old Greek nanny, Xanthi, and he's not had the courage to read them for many years. So he has them translated and he reads them and they, the reader reads them also. And that takes you back into the 50s and 60s when he grew up with her, when the family was innocent, pursuing the American dream, and all the 50s and 60s started to erode that. And ultimately, Xanthi herself, his Greek nanny who helped bring him up, levels with him about something that happened in the Greek Civil War that he has trouble squaring Mm. with the rest of his life. And so the reader will find out about that. And it tracks how important she was in his life and how important that loss of innocence was for him so that he could do what he needs to do to be a good advocate for people whose lives are falling apart. Mitchell's song somehow dragged me right through that period of time again when I listened to them. I haven't listened to Hegira and the later albums in a very long time, so I can't speak to those anymore. So I hope that answers your question. It does. That is, that's absolutely beautiful. Hmm. So what's next, Stephanie? What do you want to do next? Okay. I've got, I've got a novel that I've finished. Got another one that's starting up. The novel I finished that needs to go through the entire process of the pathway to publication is something called Expiration Date. And it too, you'll notice there's a theme here of legal matters, which I tend to incorporate into what I hope are deeply personal stories. Expiration Date was triggered, Jesse, by something I heard on the radio in 2017. I was driving around Portland and NPR came on the radio and they reported on something that was happening in Arkansas that I couldn't believe. But here it was. Arkansas was running out of a particular drug in its lethal injection cocktail. 
you're nodding your head. I think you might remember this story. Yes, because pharmaceutical companies were no longer selling these things for capital punishment purposes. They were refusing to do so. So Arkansas is running out of its drugs. It hasn't done an execution in 12 years because they can't get the drugs. There are all kinds of reasons. And this particular drug is going to expire May 1st, 2017. So their solution to that problem was to simply execute everybody left on death row in the 10 days before this drug expired. I remember the street I was on driving at the time. I was so horrified. And I thought, I've got to write about this. I'm not sure how. Again, that started as a short story. I workshopped it at a couple of conferences and my classmates let me know this is no short story. You've got to write more deeply about this. I have finished that particular novel to the best of my ability. And here's what it's about. It's not a thriller about, oh, look, you get to you get to witness all these executions. I'm not interested in the voyeurism, okay? Though you will get a lot of information about how that system works in the novel. It's about a search for grace. I'm going to pick up on the word you used earlier. Yes. There are three fictional protagonists. I fictionalized this thing. One is a murder victim's mother. The second is her best friend from childhood. The third is one of the death row prison guards who has to implement this thing. And the three of them cannot allow themselves to become collateral damage in this system. They won't allow it to happen. It's not that easy for them. All they know is something is shaking their values and shaking them to their core. Ultimately, each takes steps toward finding a humanity and even a way to interfere with the system, frankly. And I'm not going to tell secrets on this novel either, but by the end, they converge. And I hope that there is hope in this manuscript. Because what you track with them is not just the system. You find out who they were when they were kids, when they were young, who they fell in love with, what they wanted, what they cherished, and what being in the pathway of blowback of this terrible system, what that does to them, and how they find their way out. I'm particularly intrigued by the research that came up for this. Jesse, I did a lot of research and I found out that there are many people, not all by any stretch, but many people whose loved ones were murdered by somebody who find their way to forgiveness. I don't know if I could, but they do. I have researched those instances in which somebody turns to a perpetrator and says, sir, I forgive you. And it's astounding. What brings them to that? I've also done a lot of research on what happens to death row prison guards and what penalty they pay personally in their lives for what they do. Some have to turn away and they have to say, you know what? One man said, I can see the eyes of every single man whom I tied down onto the gurney, and I will never be able to overcome that 
So I am turning my back on my pension, on my job, on everything, and I'm saying goodbye. It's not just what they do. It's who they are internally. Yeah. Okay. So I want people to fall in love with these three protagonists and to understand and really see the love and the hopes that they brought with them to this situation. So that's the next novel. Hey, when it's ready to promote it, you've got a place here. Come back. We'd love to talk about it. Thank you. Sounds great. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should, Stephanie? Gosh, I don't think so. I, this has been a fun discussion. Yeah, I've, me too. I've loved visiting with you. Mm-hmm. All right. So before I get you, let you out of here, we got to do the Mary question. If you are a fan of Stephanie's work and you're checking out this podcast, thank you. She has made you all proud. I end every podcast with what we call the Mary question. Jay Armstrong, who is an honors English teacher, would print out the lyrics to Thunder Road and give it to his students. They would read the lyrics. They would study it as if it was a poem. And at the end of the session, he would ask his class the question, does Mary get in the car? So, Stephanie, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Mary does not get in the car. Okay. I know that I listened to another one of your podcasts and preparing for this, and I heard a man say, absolutely, she does. And of course, there are going to be so many different answers to this. I feel so strongly that we have heard the speaker's perspective and his longing and his dreams and the magnitude of his desire to free himself and her from loss and perhaps abandonment and failure and all the things he talks about in that poem with such beauty and all the eyes of all those young men and all he has to offer her is what's under that car hood. Yeah. But he does tell her the ride is not free. And I think that the poem is about him and his longing. He wants to free her perhaps, but I haven't heard what she wants. And I think that she does not get in the car because it's very possible that he has every indicator of all those other young men who broke her heart. Yep. And I see heartbreak at the end of that ride. I'm not. I love that answer. That's a great answer. Very nice, Stephanie. I've been on a ride where more people have said no than yes. I'm going to have to refigure out. It may be up to 50-50 now. For the longest time, it was 60-40, but I love that answer. Um, If someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? Please go to my website. It's stephaniecotzerillis.com. Let me spell it for everybody because it's an unusual name. Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, Cotzerillis. C-O-T-S-I-R-I-L-O-S, all one word, no caps. Go there and you'll you'll find out about the novella and everything else. And I will include that in the show notes. Lovely. Stephanie, this was so much fun. I hope you had a good time. I had a wonderful time. It's such a pleasure to meet you. It is wonderful to spend time with you. So listeners, remember to be safe, be kind and we'll end with blue here is a shell for you inside you'll hear a sigh 
a foggy lullaby. There is a song from me. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye now. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, So if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gaggs. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.